This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Tucker Smallwood from Star Trek Enterprise. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm your host, Patrick Devlin, and I'm joined in the command center by Trek FM Hall of Famer, Brandon Shamatala. Hey, how's it going, Patrick? And as always, we are joined <laughs> by the amazing, the you amazing didn't live Johnny. How's it going? You got to tell me how's it going. You just leave me hanging here. Uh, yeah, well, I'm doing fine, I guess. Good. I'm, you know what? Distracted. I'm glad that you're hosting because when I did, I always forget to do things like the we're in the conference room and things like that. I'm just like, hey, it's Brandon. Let's get started. <laughs> yeah, so. well, you know, we have to be in the command center for this one. We have a, a lot to talk about strategy later, right? Yeah, this is where we played uh, PlayStation 3, if I remember correctly, right? Four. Four. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> but that's okay. We did. <laughs> and as always, we are joined by the amazing live jiving Brandy Jackala. Oh, amazing. I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> you think that's the compliment? Live jiving, that's the compliment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I like the live jiving too, but I'm used to that. I'm an improviser. <laughs> just another episode of song. Yep, exactly. Uh, you just wait. There's going to be a song at some point. I'm sure something will trigger my memory of something and I will sing. Well, probably. <laughs> we look forward to it. Before we get started on our main episode here, we just want to go over a couple of comments from some previous podcasts. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks because of how we've been recording, but uh, the last episode that we're, or the first episode we're going to talk about right now is episode 133, which was our retrospective on season three, part six. Mark Rodriguez says, I wonder if Arn Darwin was one of the Klingons or a descendant of that had been changed by the augment virus. The transformation would not have had to be as drastic as a full bloodied Klingon like Voke. And Christopher Jones has talked about a couple of times on his notes from the edge, and it's been brought up before, that there is actually a comic book that talks about how how uh, some Klingons became, and I think it might have even been Arn Darvin, how he became uh, the... Uh, Whatever, however, we saw him on on uh, Troubles with Tribbles, and it's a very similar method to how we saw Voke get transformed in Star Trek Discovery. So it's kind of cool. Patrick Carlin says, "I really like E squared," 
And an actor who was cast, the actor who was cast as Lorian was completely believable as Trip and T'Pol's son, especially the scene of him and Trip in engineering when he says, could you hand me the coil spanner? 100% Trip mannerisms and inflection in that moment. Michael Parkhill says the actor who played Lorian was also Gemini and Apollo astronaut Frank Borman in the HBO series From Earth to the Moon. Uh, it was a follow-up to the Apollo 13 movie with Tom Hanks and Ron Howard. He's great in that also. Uh, Patrick Carlin says the sphere builders were mentioned a few times in Christopher L. Bennett's DTI, which is the Department of Temporal Investigations, uh, the book called Watching the Clock. And it said that they played a part in another rather significant time travel story from Trek history. So that'll be fun to check out. Uh, and Patrick Carlin also said, we, we had an issue with the time traveling and when it occurred and when did they happen to go back right at the end of the last episode of season three. And Patrick Carlin said, I'd always assumed that the time travel thing happened right after the Enterprise exited the Zindi ship, and it's been shown before that the time travel technology that Daniels has can do things in a blink, and I didn't even think of that at all. So that's an awesome pull from Patrick Carlin, because he's done that. We'd seen Captain Archer turn a corner and all of a sudden be somewhere else. So, you know what? Patrick Carlin just completely fixed the problem that I had with the end of that episode. What do you guys think of that? Well, now I'm glad I only have one issue with the end of that episode, <laughs> which yeah. is the airplanes. It should have occurred to me as well, um, and I don't know why that it didn't. Uh, I was apparently just not thinking of anything other than what could have happened in their immediate vicinity. So, way to go. Nice, nice catch there, Mr. Patrick Carlin. Well done. Yeah. And then our last episode we had, episode 134, was on Porthos. And we had a lot of positive reaction on that episode. We didn't get a lot of comments, but we did get a lot of positive reaction. And in fact, that was our largest download day in the last three months. I couldn't believe it. And the funny thing is, uh, it was pointed out by Paul Chen that we released this on Friday, which happened to be Chinese New Year, and it's the Year of the Dog this year. So it was it was a complete accident. We didn't realize it, but maybe that helped to uh, boost our numbers a little bit. But uh, I'm, I'm glad to take that coincidence and run with it. I'm okay with that. Uh, Greg Mullaby says, I watched Doctor's Orders last night, and they really did a great job of getting the dog to act. Love those cute, beggy eyes. Uh, Patrick Carlin says, I freely admit that the part in the last Enterprise book had me crying. And we won't give spoilers for the Enterprise novels here, but there's definitely a great part in there, and I know what you're talking about, Patrick. And Patrick Carlin also says, I forget which one it's in, but there's a Strange New World story where some alien weapon causes Porthos to body swap with Malcolm, and it's hilarious. So <laughs> that's kind of funny. I'm seeking that out. Yeah, right on. Uh, and we actually, he did mention afterwards that it was from Stranger Worlds number nine. I think he said so. That's all we got. Patrick, do you want to introduce our guests for and our topic for today? Yeah, so so the reason we're here in the command center is we are also joined by Mike, Michael Wong and Elise Cutts of the Strange New World podcast to talk about the Zindi race. Welcome, Michael. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. How are you? I'm doing well. We're glad yeah. to have you back, and we're definitely hoping that you'll sing today, too. Me? Yeah. <laughs> you, so yeah, yeah. what you don't know probably is that Elise and I met on a Star Trek parody musical that we did at Caltech. 
so, don't think I did know that. No, yeah. Um, so, yes, we can both sing. I can sort of sing, at least actually sings. She's in uh, one of the acapella groups at Caltech. I just pretend to sing so that I can be on stage in costume <laughs> for Star Trek. <laughs> Well, that's good. It takes all the pressure off me to have to sing. And if you've listened back, you notice that I'm the only one who doesn't. So, excellent, right on. Well, I don't know. Now we got to get you and Elise to do some kind of song. Do you guys remember any of your songs? Well, yeah. oh boy, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow, Way to put them on the yeah, spot. But I don't know if you want to want to hear that. I'll, I'll send you one bar of gold press latinum if you sing. Oh boy, that you know that's a valuable resource. Um, <laughs> oh god, I try to remember um, one that both of us know. Cause, okay, cause, well you you, yeah. you can do it at the end if you want. Yeah, you can, you yeah. Can... Just let's let's put this on hold. <laughs> <laughs> so since we didn't introduce her, we just put her on the spot for singing. Uh, that voice is Elise. How, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Uh, it's really awesome to be here. Great, we're glad to have you. Um, so one of the things that's become kind of a custom on uh, Warp 5 is we like to ask new guests how they got into Star Trek in the first place. We've already had Patrick on, so he's already told us his story. So now it's your turn, Elise. <laughs> well, um, well, that that would be Michael, but yeah. Oh, Michael. Holy smokes. <laughs> oh, did I, I hope I've been on before. I, yes. <laughs> We've already had Michael on. He's already told. Patrick's already told us as well. So. Oh, it's going to be one of those kind of nights. Am I going to be Amy again? Oh, yes, boy. Amy. <laughs> So I got into Star Trek um, with the 2009 movie because I'm like a little baby. I'm 20 years old. So I just got into Star Trek um, with the 2009 movie and my mom took me to watch it because she grew up on Star Trek. She grew up watching the original series. She was born in 58. And um, when I came out of the the movie theater, just kind of over the moon over it, she was like, hey, child, you know there's an entire series of this that exists and I'm just like no way mom oh my gosh show me <laughs> so uh, I was introduced to the original series as my first Star Trek series and you know now it's a little painful to go back and watch it sometimes after seeing the newer more polished series but yeah um, that's how I got into it is just my mom made the fatal mistake of taking me to 2009 and then taking me again and again when I asked and showing me TOS on Netflix so that is how I got into Star Trek Excellent. That movie did exactly what it was supposed to do. Yeah, it, it yes. got me. <laughs> yeah, it brought in new fans, which, if nothing else, it's worth having the movies. Yep. <laughs> so so today we plan on uh, talking about the Zindi. So a little background on the Zindi. The Zindi were an alliance of species who evolved on the same planet in the Delphic Expanse known as, the Zin- as Zindus. The Zindi had a long and turbulent history characterized by interspecies conflict, up until the destruction of their homeworld in in the 2030s as a result of the insectoid and reptilian plot, which is uh, told to us in Enterprise episode, The Shipment. In the early 2150s, they, they commit an infamous attack on Earth and made repeated attempts to terminate humans, which changed the course of history and initiated a series of events that helped establish United Earth as a major interstellar power. In at least one future timeline from where Daniels originated, the Zindi state had that. The Zindi state had, by the 26th century, become a member of the United Federation of Planets. Uh, anyone else have anything to add to the history of the Zindi themselves? We don't really get a chance to learn about it, but I would have loved to have learned more about this insectoid and reptilian plot that destroyed the first Zindi homeworld. Like, it's such an amazing 
concept. And I, I often think that that may have been when uh, when the avians went extinct. Possibly. Uh, yeah, they don't give us enough on either one of those two stories, which I would have really enjoyed. Right. I have a section in the episode here later on that we'll talk about where we're just going to kind of speculate on maybe what could have happened here. But I just have one point on that. How do we know it was totally the reptilians and the insectoids? Because the guardians could have engineered that so that they could swoop in and save the day and put their fractured species back together. Well, that's actually an interesting idea. That's a great idea. Wow. Completely plausible, but the, the physical actions were taken by the, the insectoids and the reptilians. Well, of course, because that's how the guardians work. What? <laughs> and the guardians True. are the sphere builders, right? Same uh, thing. Yes. Yeah. Same yeah. thing. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Haven't heard people call them the guardians. I guess the Zindi call them the guardians. That's why. Yeah, we just learned that in like okay. the last episode or two of the season. Got it. Yeah, when they dump a whole lot of guardians on you <laughs> out of nowhere. Just, oh, boy. Just, here's everything about them. Okay. Um, all right, so there was six species, right? Um, there was the... Man, I'm not going to remember this. There was the insectoids, the reptilians, the avians, the... Aquatics. Aquatics. The aquatics. And there's two more. Uh, the Arboreals. And... The primates. Primates. Yeah. There you go. So so we had those six. How do we think they, they evolve separately? Uh, start with Mike. Yeah, well, I, I think we really need to go all the way back to the beginning of life on a planet and try to understand what evolution does at, at, in principle. And in, in it's, uh, you know, how, how natural selection works and how it creates diversity in living species. We actually, uh, Elise and I sort of talked about this before, and I, I think um, she w- is going to... Uh, talk about the principles of, of evolution and the driving forces for diversity on a planet. And then I'll probably end up uh, speculating on the evolution of intelligence and consciousness. So at this point, I think I should turn it over to Elise to talk about how evolution <laughs> <laughs> drives. Yeah. Um, the funny thing about evolution is that it works by adapting existing structures to new uses. Like, for instance, flight in birds Feathers didn't evolve for flight. Feathers evolved for warmth or sexual displays or intimidation displays. And then a couple of dinosaurs, it just kept uh, snowballing until eventually a couple of dinosaurs could, you know, hop a little bit better because they had these sort of like big flashy displays on their arms for mating or intimidation. And then eventually evolution starts acting because you get to a point where hopping becomes an evolutionary strategy. Um, but early on in evolution, um, most of Earth history actually was spent microbial. The vast majority of Earth history was spent in a sort of microbial regime, and all of this evolution was occurring that was mostly producing variation in just sort of cellular chemistry, not in any kind of like producing dinosaurs or producing humans type of a thing. Um, but once multicellularity evolved, and it's a pretty interesting story about um, symbiosis, actually. It's sort of how people think... Um, the eukaryotic cell started and um, these microbial communities could have been a model for sort of the way that our cells talk to each other. But once once eukaryotic cells developed and once animals developed around the Cambrian, um, you just see this immediate huge radiation of diversity because um, this new strategy for being alive suddenly existed and then evolution could start to adapt on that strategy. 
Um, so the way evolution works for those who haven't heard about this in an intro bio class or something is that within any population, there are naturally occurring variations among individuals. So like I could be taller than my neighbor or um, a finch could have a larger beak than its neighbor. And they're all members of the same species, but they have these differences that in nature could give in one individual sort of an edge over another individual. Um, and those individuals who do better because of some specific mutation that they have or like being taller makes it easier to grab something uh, out of trees if that's where you're living. Whatever the variation is that makes you better able to live lets you be more reproductively successful. So you end up producing more offspring who also share your variants. So like, you know how tall people tend to have taller children, um, people like animals and organ microbes um, and plants, everything produces offspring that is sort of like itself. So these variations get built upon and often exaggerated to crazy extremes. Like this is where we get peacocks from, right? Um, they've been sexually selected for because being flashy was so, so successful uh, for the male birds because the females liked them better, that there was just runaway evolution towards these huge tail feathers that were so big that they couldn't fly anymore, but they were just getting all the ladies. So it got adapted <laughs> for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's actually funny that uh, the sexual selection pressure often acts directly against fitness in a lot of ways, but um, you reach this sort of equilibrium um, where the the trait is being punished and rewarded at a rate that keeps it at some certain display, like the, the peacock feathers is an example, um, some certain level of expression. But yeah, so evolution works not by like generating new structures is basically the takeaway, but adapting structures that already exist and it comes up with these like weird hacky solutions to things. It's not really elegant in any way. It just, um, it works with what it's got. Uh, so that's sort of how diversity happens. It's just something that already exists getting put into a situation in which there are new niches for it to explode into, for evolution to guide it into. So Elise, I don't know if you can answer this question, but I think it's a good question to ask. It might be a very simplistic question, mm -hmm. but um, if... For example, so with evolution occurring, if human beings on Earth have evolved from apes, mm -hmm. then why are there still apes on the planet? Like, does that fall into that category? Well, yeah. So there, we didn't evolve from the kinds of apes that are still around right now. They're sort of like evolutionary cousins. So we share the same branch of the tree, but we're all different twigs coming off of that branch. Um, mm -hmm. So, for instance... Um, so, so whales, their closest living ancestor is a hippopotamus. And a lot of the wow. transitionary species, <laughs> it, this isn't saying that a whale evolved from a hippopotamus. No, but, I, I understand what you're yeah. saying. I'm just laughing because they Brandy share had the an ancestor, face. which is the same relationship that we have with the great apes that currently exist. So we share an ancestor, but we're different endpoints on branches from the tree. It's not like right. we came from chimps. Chimps and us are the, we share a parent the closest back in our evolutionary history from anything that exists today. Um, That's so a we're great just answer yeah, to that question. Different yeah, twigs on the sure. same branch. So would this be similar to how you ended up with six different species of Zindi? You know, I, I think that, I mean, maybe Mike will talk about this, but the Zindi seems so different that they almost seem like they're very distantly related species that have come up with intelligence as a common solution to some kind of selection pressure. 
Um, and so since they were all living in different environments, I imagine that they were just all filling this sort of intelligence niche within their environments, or they evolved some kind of, um, they evolved intelligence independently. Because it's hard to look at the, the aquatics and like the avians or the aquatics and the primates and imagine that they're near, like closely related species. And even the way they think about the world is so different. Like they, they talk about this in the episodes with the Zindi, is that they all have these sort of different mindsets about things. That to me, I, I would think it would be, at least in the case of some of the more divergent species, just a case of a common solution to the same problem. And you see this in, um, we see this sort of convergent evolution with all sorts of stuff on Earth. I mean, intelligence, well, Mike will probably go into whether or not we see more cases of intelligence than just us on Earth. But flight, for instance, has evolved many different times completely independently. Like birds and bats developed flight completely independently of each other, um, but they both have wings that operate and look very similarly. Um, and pterodactyls evo evolved flight completely distinctly of birds. They're not related to each other in that way. And insect flight is a completely different kind of flight that was developed outside of this whole bird lineage as well. So you can come up with the same evolutionary, evolutionary solution um, on completely different lineages. So the Zindi wouldn't necessarily have to be related to each other closely. Right. So what you're saying is that intelligence is basically a, uh, there's a pressure towards developing intelligent beings on a world. And even though the Zindi probably don't share a very closely related or a very close last common ancestor because one is an insect, another one is a reptilian, another one is, you know, a, a, pro probably was a fish at some point. Um, there was a drive towards intelligence because intelligence is a very evolutionarily favorable trait to have. Yeah, I don't know if intelligence is actually all that favorable to have always. Because um, it's, it's very debate. expensive. It's very expensive to have a big brain, <laughs> energetically speaking. Um, but uh, we do see it as a strategy that shows up a lot in animals that have to cooperate as, in groups. Um, and we yeah. don't know yet if intelligence is an evolutionarily favorable trait because we haven't been around for long enough. So it's it's really critical to to note that human beings have been around for just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the time that all of life has been around on Earth. So the, the people argue about what the oldest evidence is for life on Earth. Some people put it at three and a half billion years ago. Others go even farther back, closer to four billion years ago. But life has been around on Earth for an extremely long period of time. And just like Elise said, most of that time, life was very simple and single-celled only. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So those were the prokaryotic cells that you mentioned. Not just single-celled organisms, but organisms whose cells were extremely simple. They're streamlined, yep. They don't have much of the junk that we keep in ours. Um, and that's still the majority of diversity on Earth today, is these microbes. And then there was a jump to what you called a eukaryotic cell, which at the beginning was still just a single-celled organism, but mm -hmm. contained a lot more complexity. And then after that, you can achieve multicellularity and eventually animals and plants and fungi, like maybe mycelia, which uh, <laughs> is on everybody's mind these days. But, um, but yeah, the diversity of life that we see when we go to the zoo today emerged quite late on in the entire evolutionary history of life. Mm -hmm. And intelligence only occupies the very last fraction of that time. 
And we don't know yet because we haven't seen ourselves become a, a, a species that has dominated Earth for an evolutionarily important amount yeah. of time or not. It may end up that intelligence is a bad trait to have because it ends up that if you're too intelligent, you develop, I don't know, nuclear warheads or <laughs> you end up uh, poisoning your planet with carbon dioxide <laughs> and then you make yourself go extinct. Yeah, right. well... Uh we know intelligence can be selected for um, because it has like we're here and there's a huge evolutionary history that led to us. It takes a long time to get anywhere with evolution. Um, but yeah, whether or not it's worth it for an individual species is really variable. Um, an interesting case with whales again is that we know that their brains got larger as they went back into the ocean. And some people think this is because they started to live in groups again. So it becomes like beneficial to be smart if you have other people to work with or other creatures to work with. So this complex social behavior might be something that makes the energy cost of having a big brain actually worth it. Um, so we don't know anything about the Zindi home world, but it might have been somewhere that would have allowed there to be multiple intelligent species. We also don't really know how intelligence works as far as if multiple species can occupy that niche of intelligence. Um, because the one case I think we know of when two intelligent species operate, like we're on Earth at the same time, was the humans and Neanderthals. And um, it's sort of debated whether or not we drove them extinct or if they just went extinct. Um, but these two species were sort of occupying the same niche of intelligence and one didn't make it and one did. So it's kind of unclear if it's possible, at least in our world, to have multiple intelligent species occupying a similar niche. Well, that's, that's a great point, Elise. Um, and it's worth noting that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are extremely similar in the fact that we're both primates. And so we're both fighting for basically the same kinds of natural resources. Mm -hmm. I think the Zindi are a much more promising case because their species are so different. Like, oh, for absolutely. instance, the aquatics are not going to be competing for the same resources as the avians. And so they could probably develop an intelligence in the ocean while the avians developed an intelligence in the air and wouldn't conflict with each other until they encountered each other when, I don't know, their cities collided somehow and they discovered that each other existed yeah um, this is what kind of confuses me about the primate zindi and the and the arboreals, arboreals because we're really arboreals <laughs> with less hair uh, so in the enterprise episode dear doctor they do mm -hmm. stumble upon a planet where there are two intelligent humanoid species that have evolved. Yeah, and that's really interesting because it's uh, approaching that same trend that we're that we saw on Earth, where humans and Neanderthals kind of butted heads against each other, and one of them went extinct. And the same thing is about to happen on this other planet. Yeah. Oh wow, that's interesting. Now. I don't know if this applies now or if we should come back to it later, but a couple of weeks ago, you guys had a podcast where you discussed the Drake equation, uh, which in a nutshell is this abstract theory with that's all variables that says if you know the the if you know the value of each of these variables, you can come up with the answer of how many sentient species there are in the galaxy right now. Mm -hmm. But it's all a bunch of variables, right? And you yeah. guys had an interesting episode and. This would put a, uh, a significant wrench in the equation if you have a planet that has six intelligent species on it. Yeah, because one of the parameters in the Drake equation that he was talking about, one of these variables, is the likelihood of 
a planet that can support life developing intelligent life. Um, and so often people consider this in the context of if there's going to be intelligent life, there's probably only going to be one instance of it on this planet. Um, so I think that's what you're referring to, right? Yes, that's right. Yep. Yeah, so the equation still works if you allow that number to actually be greater than one. So mm -hmm. you would calculate a fraction of planets that can develop life, and then you would multiply that by, if you decided that a planet could develop intelligence, say, six times, like the Zindi, then you would just multiply that by six instead of one or a fraction of one if you were very pessimistic about intelligence evolving. It just makes it easier to be an optimist if you think there's more... Um more than one possible path to intelligence on a planet. I, I agree with that because the way that we measure intelligence of humans is not necessarily the way the rest of the species on this planet measure their own intelligence. So We are the only ones building spaceships, though. We are the only sort ones of building important. spaceships, but how, who are we to say that we're more intelligent than dolphins? Yeah, I, that's that's a really interesting case um, and the more we learn about cetaceans, cetaceans are whales um, yeah. and dolphins. Because uh, the more we learn that they're so Star smart. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's come out recently that certain whale species and dolphins actually have names to refer to each other with, like certain sounds that they know are associated with individuals. But again, they're not the type of intelligence that's building transmitting uh, devices, and that's what the Drake equation is really trying to get at. It's right. how many civilizations are out there that we could listen to, that we could find and realize we're there. Um, and if we've got a whole bunch of whale worlds that are all just, you know, being smart but not talking to anybody, that's really cool, but it's difficult for us to know about their existence. Although, in the Star Trek universe, <laughs> whales do communicate whales with do aliens. <laughs> There's this big paper towel roll covered in aluminum yeah. foil with the volleyball hanging out of it that goes to Earth to talk to whales. Uh, and there I think they were joking around that that interstellar asteroid that came through recently uh, might have yeah. been the whale ship because it's sort of elongated and rod-shaped. Yeah, I, I uh, yeah. actually, yeah. I remember it's definitely several just people. checking up on the whales. It totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just checked up on the whales. Oh, it's, they're Saw still there. there. Still Great. <laughs> yeah. that, this is when Star Trek Four finally got to their planet. So they saw it and were like, we better go and check on it and make sure they're okay over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that, that kind of leads to our second topic is, is there more than one sentient species on Earth? and what Or what other life could possibly become sentient on Earth? Mike, do you well, have some thoughts about this? Yeah, definitely. So I can talk about the evolution of consciousness um, from an evolutionary uh, biology perspective. And recently there's uh, been a theory that came out called the attention scheme theory that suggests that consciousness arises as a solution to one of the most fundamental problems that faces any nervous system, which is that we are being bombarded by way too much information constantly, and we need to process that somehow. And so we need to find a way to select certain signals at the expense of others. And as the brain evolves to do this task, consciousness is actually the evolutionary result. So for a very unevolved being, like a jellyfish, for instance, a jellyfish has a very simple nervous system. It doesn't really have a brain. And so it only offers very generalized responses to stimuli. If you touch a jellyfish, it'll sting you. And it has no choice about it, which is unfortunate. Um, but 
we have what's called selective signal enhancement, which in animals evolved between 600 and 700 million years ago, right around when the first eyes evolved as very primitive light detectors. And so shortly after what's called the Cambrian explosion, which was just the proliferation of different kinds of animal body types, um, that happened about 400, 541 million years ago, a part of the brain called the tectum evolved in vertebrates. And the tectum's job is to coordinate all of your senses sight, hearing, smell, touch. And what the tectum does is it creates an internal model in your brain to simulate yourself in the physical world that allows for prediction and planning. And this is the limit of cognition or sentience in fish and in, in, in amphibians. So an example of how this works is that if I hear a sound to my left, my internal model, my tectum, tells me that if I turn my eyes to my left, I can see the thing that made that sound that I heard. And this is called overt attention. But mammals, which we belong to, augmented our tectum over evolutionary history with what's called the cerebral cortex. And you've probably heard of that as, I don't know, Dr. Phlox or the EMH <laughs> is healing somebody. It's usually something wrong with their cerebral cortex. And so the cerebral cortex allows for not overt attention, but covert attention. So this is paying attention to something without letting the world know, like, for instance, eavesdropping on a conversation. So just as the tectum creates a physical model of the world in your brain, the cerebral cortex creates what's called an attention schema, which is a model of the attentional states of other things in the world. And this allows for social prediction. So for example, my attention schema might predict that you'll be mad at me if I overheard your conversation. So I'm going to keep my back to you while I listen in. And so the attention schema which is my brain calculating my attitude with respect to the modeled attitudes of other beings, basically attributing sentience or consciousness to them, is the origin of sentience in human beings. And so dogs, crows, cetaceans, they all show the ability to attribute awareness to other beings of their species. And this is really remarkable, and it all started very deep in evolutionary history for mammals, or for, uh, for, for, for animals at least. It all started with the vertebrates evolving a part of their brain called the tectum. So it's interesting to note that if the Zindi followed the same evolutionary path, then all the Zindi species except for the insectoids should have consciousness because insectoids aren't vertebrates, but all the other ones are. Um, but of course, you know, you're free to imagine another world in which insects also developed a similar analogous type of brain structure. So that's how we think that, or at least one major theory for how scientists think that consciousness and sentience evolved on Earth. Crazy. Because, like, right now there's an IDW comic out there that's, like, dealing with all these parallel dimensions interacting. And I'm not a big fan of this series myself because it's, I think, a little bit too far-fetched because some of these other... Uh, parallel dimensions that they're encountering are you know some that are easily understandable like uh it's everything is the opposite gender but there's also ones where kirk is a plant 
and there's like sentient plants and there's like <laughs> sentient gases and it's I, I'm not a big fan of the series myself but they're taking it to a real extreme where you know there's all these other things now I don't believe that those types of things could develop sentience mm-hmm. I don't think we could I mean we have plants that have physical reactions like the Venus flytrap that can eat yeah. and yeah. can react to its environment but that's I don't think that's an intelligence they're actually starting to find more and more that plants are more complicated than we think they are. And um, that in forests, actually, trees interface with each other and will actually share nutrients with sick trees um, if they can identify that they're sick. So, I mean, and, and plants are able to identify plant murderers in, experience, in experiments. Um, so if somebody comes in and kills a plant in, some, in front of some other plants, exits the room and then comes back in, they'll measure a response in these plants. Uh, but yeah, I agree that, I mean, a plant doesn't need to develop a brain and that would be a pretty energetically costly thing to develop as a plant when all you need to do to be a plant is to just sort of repel some, some predators and grow. So, um, yeah, but I mean, plants are a little more complicated than we think they are, uh, which is just sort of related, I guess, in some ways, you, fungi are more complicated than we think they are as well, uh, which is something that Discovery was playing off of. Plants and fungi right. are the same thing, but similar sort of like network structure, sort of sharing resources, um, maybe a di- di- dispersed consciousness uh, people are starting to think about. But yeah, certainly no tectums and plants. Um, <laughs> right, right. I read the first two and a half chapters of Mycelium Running, uh, which is Paul Stamets' book, which is about mushrooms and which has had inspiration for the new Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. And it's it's way over my head, but there was like a couple of things that I did catch it out of it. And one of them is they had like some tests that they were running, and I'm going to butcher and like <laughs> not properly relay it, but there was some type of test where they had some type of fungus that they put through a maze. And it was, and it, each time they did it, it grew the shortest path through this maze. Mm-hmm. But it's like really on a microscopic level. It was a really small. Yeah, people do a lot of stuff like this with slime molds. Uh, I think that's what it was. Too, yeah, something like that. people yeah. have actually used them to figure out the most efficient ways to chart like subway routes, which is a computational problem that we have a lot of issues getting computers to solve for us. Which is pretty oh, cool wow. that a fungus can outsmart a computer in some cases. <laughs> Well, you should see them dance. Those are some pretty fun guys. <laughs> dad joke. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I don't know if that's a dad joke or like a... I've heard stuff it's like a, that at Caltech. I got it's kids. Like a nerd it's a dad joke. joke. <laughs> it's a nerd joke. <laughs> so I also wanted to um, talk about the development of the extraordinary intelligence that we humans possess over the other primates. And I have a a cool little way of um, relating this back to some Star Trek Enterprise. Um, So as we all know, human cognitive capacity goes way far beyond what is minimally required to live and to reproduce and allows us to engage in a remarkable breadth of technical and creative endeavors like podcasting, for instance. Um, And so there's been some recent work that shows that intelligence um, is the result of a positive evolutionary feedback between the size of the brain, which determines the overall intelligence of the species, and also the timing of birth, which determines the size of the brain when a newborn is born, but also the helplessness of a newborn. So you can sort of think of this as like a fitness landscape where if your species adult brain is very large and you are born late, that is your gestation period is very long, 
you end up failing because of childbirth problems. And it turns out that the human pelvis size is pretty limited by the evolutionary pressure for us to stand upright and use our hands as tool manipulating things. Um, and if your species adult brain size is very small and you're born too early, you also fail because you're helpless when you're born, if you're born early and have a small brain when you're born. And then if you, your adults also have relatively small brains, then they make really bad, unintelligent parents. So there, it ends up that there's two uh, stable states in this uh, parameter space. So you can only survive if you are small-brained and you're born very late meaning that when you're born, you're actually fully functional uh, as, as an individual, or you are big-brained and you're born very early. And so evolution pressures you to enter one of these successful bins, either stay stupid but have functional babies or get smart but be helpless at birth. And evolutionary is probably more likely to maintain the same small brain size but just delay the time of birth. But it's also possible to swing the other way. And I think humans ended up in this direction, pushed by natural selection, to the stable state where we have large brains, but we're born super early. We only spend nine months in, uh, in the womb. And as our brains got bigger, we got more intelligent, but we had to be born earlier and earlier and thus be more helpless when we come out of our mothers. But that's okay because as our brain size increased, our intelligence increased, and that led to, as Elise alluded to before, cooper cooperation, cooperative child rearing and social structures like schools and things like that, that enhance the success of newborns. And so all of that theory really reminded me when I was reading this paper, it reminded me of Archer's speech at the end of Shockwave Part 2. So you remember that Ambassador Saval is threatening to recall Enterprise and cancel its mission. When Archer recounts a story from his early 20s when he was in East Africa and saw a gazelle giving birth, and within minutes, this gazelle was fully functional and trotting alongside its parent and doing everything that gazelles do. But humans, Archer says, uh, we're, we're different. We're, we're helpless when we're born. And so he draws an analogy to humanity's first deep space mission. So Archer says, quote, we're going to stumble, make mistakes, but we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about. And then, of course, to everyone's surprise, Paul goes to bat for the Enterprise crew and backs up Archer and reminds Ambassador Saval that Vulcans are exactly the same way. And so that's just a little Enterprise tidbit that really flew in, uh, really uh, that reading this paper really reminded me of, which was really cool. Anyhow, so yes, intelligence and consciousness <laughs> definitely can evolve on planets. But all of the theories that scientists have discussed explain the evolution of intelligence and consciousness in, for instance, humans. But because they apply to Earth and the way we see Earth now, these same theories necessarily exclude the evolution of intelligence in, say, reptilians or insects, um, because we don't see those things. So any theory that, of evolution that explains our intelligence must also simulta simultaneously explain why there aren't intelligent insectoids on Earth. And so I think it's really left to the realm of science fiction, and Star Trek does a great job of this, to explore the other possibilities that could occur on a totally different planet with a completely different set of evolutionary pressures.
Yeah, and the insectoids and the aquatics and avians and such um, on the Zindi world don't have to have an evolutionary history, anything like insects or birds or whales on Earth. They can they could be more closely related to each other than we are to insects or whales or birds, um, because this evolutionary history could be completely different. Like it's it's almost ludicrous to call them like insects. We call them insectoids because they're not insects. They just sort of look like insects and sort of act like them. And it's it's also sort of ludicrous to imagine that you'd have a completely other planet that has the same evolutionary history as the Earth dividing into the same groups with the same look and feel um, at the very end. So I think that, I mean, you don't have to assume that the Zindi had to have all evolved consciousness through completely different means. They could have, like like Mike was saying, they could have shared some kind of brain development early on in evolutionary history before diverging rather than having to turn an insect brain into a humanoid brain you could have the insectoids could be more humanoid than insect than as they appear uh, and indeed uh, in the enterprise episode the zindi when they're introduced it was mentioned that the six zindi species share 99.5 percent of their dna despite their physical differences and that's an astonishing amount Right. I think that's yes. even more than the DNA that we share with chimps, our closest neighbor. And to have a primate share 99.5% of its DNA with a reptilian is quite astounding. I think we only share maybe 50% of our DNA with reptilian. We share about 50% of our DNA with a banana. So I think we're a bit yeah. closer to, to reptiles um, than 50%. But still, no, you're, I, yeah, I, so what I you're saying is it's possible to have an intelligent banana. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that a lot of DNA goes to doing things that all life needs to do, like produce energy or metabolize or, um, you know, just grow and have cells and have membranes. And so most, a lot of DNA is just coding for this stuff that all life on Earth needs to do. So that's why we share so much of it with things that are so different from us. Um, And the closer and closer to us to the get, like the more and more functions we need to share. It's kind of ludicrous for me to imagine it a whale type aquatic species being that close to to a terrestrial species because there's just so much evolutionary time between going like to to develop what needs to happen to go back into the water um right i mean we have a case study for this in whales and we also have a case study for going the other way from fish to to tetrapods which are four four-legged creatures that are like us and reptiles amphibians and such i i think it just you'd get variation even just from like genetic drift just from random chance basically if if you had enough time passing between when these species diverged from each other um, it's also can can the zindi species mate with each other can they produce could you have like a aquatic zindi and a and a primate have fertile offspring. I feel like that's sort of out there. <laughs> could a could a human mate with a chimpanzee? I don't think I, so. No, um, but we could with Neanderthals. We were close enough to them that we could. And and we um, can with Vulcans. So. Yeah. If you're, if you're, well, that takes some science yeah, but, intervention. Yeah, Fox had to had to invent. Fox was do a that, special though. boy. <laughs> the, <laughs> Um, but humans could mate with Neanderthals, um, and uh, we did. And there's genetic evidence of this. In if you're European, if you're white European, you have Neanderthal DNA. Just just letting you know. Woo! That's, yeah, you're <laughs> less evolved. No, um, right, I'm, I'm unevolved. That's great. I'm actually um, reading a book about that. That's it's totally fiction, but it's based upon those concepts. 
results of the Neanderthal evolution and uh, humans and Neanderthals interbreeding and what that may have produced, taking it to a different conclusion than maybe what yeah. scientific evidence has because it's fiction, but it's extremely mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious how closely related the Zindi are, because I feel like the primates in the arboreals, it would make sense if they could reproduce. But if there is enough time, evolutionary time dividing some of these, it, like, do the insectoids lay eggs? Do the reptilians lay eggs? Because this well, the is insectoids, all stuff they that have would... that hatchery, right? Yeah, Where they, they yeah. had the eggs. So they do they have were... eggs. Yeah. yeah. So this is all stuff that I think would take a lot more than like 5% of a DNA to do. Right. So I think that was a little bit of a hopeful closeness, but that is implying that they are really, really close to each other and they just diverged recently, right, which right. makes me think they had some kind of like common ancestor that developed scaly skin in the reptilian case and um, insecty looking appendages in the insectoid case, but they had to have had some sort of recent common ancestor and imagining what that could have looked like is really difficult for me. <laughs> it had bug eyes, uh, a whale feathers. Tail. It had a whale tail with flippers. <laughs> <laughs> it climbed trees. Uh, <laughs> it yeah. climbed trees with its tail. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. Right on. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty in-depth discussion here. I think to wrap it up right now, though, uh, I think we want to touch again on what do we think as speculation may have happened to the Zindi, you know, in their home world. And, you know, for me, the most fascinating aspect of the Zindi species is these avians that we don't see. We only see the skull of one of them. And I, I think that is such an interesting opportunity for storytelling as to what happened. And I would love, they're never going to do it, but I would love to read a novel talking about the life of the Zindi as a species and what happened with their war, what happened with their planet and what happened with the avians. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in my mind, all that I could think is it must be some type of pollution or something like that, that caused the avians to go extinct because the area they were flying in became uninhabitable. So Brandy and Patrick, I'll ask you guys first here, Brandy, what do you think possibly could have happened? I I know you said at the beginning, it might've been the guardians, but if it's not that, let's let's say maybe the Guardians weren't involved. What do you think might have happened to their planet? Well, the same thing that's going to happen to our planet if we don't rein ourselves in, I think. So I want to get to that Star Trek future, but I'm afraid we're going to annihilate ourselves before we even get close to it. And I think that that may be what started to happen on Zindus. Because you have six very different species. They obviously didn't all get along. And so it's more than likely that there were wars. And they may have made their planet completely uninhabitable through their own actions. I don't really see it as necessarily a nature thing with that many sentient species. I think it's more of a, well, I can't say humanoid thing because it's not, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. It, it was It was something based on intelligence, because that's the downside of intelligence, is we think we always know what's best uh, for all of the other life forms. And different species, obviously, with intelligence, would think that, oh, no, we should be the rulers, because we know best. And you have six species like that on one planet, there's bound to be fights, a lot of fights. So my guess is that they destroyed themselves. And they destroyed their own planet in that regard. And what, I'm sorry, what left was refugees, basically. After hearing this discussion, I think that 
we had a planet that was really large with separate continents that were so far apart that they all had to evolve separately, you know, so that that's how you have the, the massive differences in the different species. But as their technology grew and they were able to start connecting with each other, that's when the fighting started. We do see the, uh, I forget what episode it is now, I can't recall. We do see that the planet actually blew up, right? So obviously... The, the story is that the reptilians and insectoids decided to blow the planet. Somehow they did that. They don't really explain how the avians died, but I would assume something like what Brandy was saying, the the uh, pollution of war, the, the, the making the weapons and all that, eventually made it so that the skies were basically uninhabitable on the planet. This caused, that and the war itself, caused the avians to go extinct. They blew the planet and ran, and now you have them scattered somewhat around the Delphic Expanse, looking for a new home world. See, the interesting thing is that with that is, like, even where we are right now, where we talk about, you know, we could blow ourselves up with nuclear annihilation, we literally can't blow up the planet, <laughs> right? We can just destroy life on the planet. So the fact that this planet itself blew up, I don't... I don't. I don't know if it was a direct result of the war, and that's. I kind of speculate that maybe it was a a natural disaster, as in, like a sun going nova, maybe even or something like that. But I don't know. Like it just opens up these interesting ideas because yeah, we could blow up our planet with bombs, but it won't actually blow up the planet. Yeah, but if they have the intelligence to create spacefaring vehicles, and they attach weapons to said spacefaring vehicles, they can possibly develop weapons strong enough to destroy an entire planet. Which is obvious they have space travel, otherwise they would have all died on that planet. Yeah. So, I don't know. And I think the the weapon of uh, the mass destruction that they were intending to use on Earth was exactly a weapon that could destroy a planet, so... Yeah, know. but they didn't have that when they destroyed their own planet. It was still in. Well, maybe they well, could maybe. have, and they forgot how to make it, and they were remaking it. But right, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. There's a lot yeah, of yeah. planet destroying things in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, <laughs> like the Planet Killer. <laughs> Literally, they're basically crackerjack prizes in the Star Trek universe. They're just everywhere. <laughs> it's rough to be a planet in this. Universe. <laughs> it's really hard, man. Chances of survival uh, can be really low. Especially, you know, if you get infected with this whole life thing. I know, right? Intelligence? <laughs> uh, Lowers your chances of survival significantly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you could also become sick, like in that episode Fraggle Rock. You know, <laughs> Lord, no, terrible. stop bringing that up. I'm beginning to think <laughs> you secretly like that because of how I much you bring it, it I up. I hate it. I just want to make sure everyone knows it. I don't want anyone to miss it ever. <laughs> He's talking about Extinction, which is the one where they... they Archer and, and to Paul and Reed and Hoshi like de evolve or whatever. Oh boy. This. Yeah, the not the not very good episode. <laughs> Worst set of science ever. You know, it's it's interesting you guys bring up pollution because that's actually a really good way to kill birds specifically. And we've done it very successfully in here in Southern California where Mike and I are from with DDT, which is something that isn't so bad for us because we just ate inside. We like give life birth and it wasn't it was basically a pesticide um, but birds were consuming it and um, it made their shells too fragile to hatch eggs so the eggs would crack before they could um, survive and so if you had something a pollutant that specifically affected the reproductive biology of these avians then you could eliminate one species without you know 
just nuking the whole planet and all of the species could have died out or something together. It would be a very targeted um, death that would have only affected the one species. Or, you know, we live in a time of bio-warfare. They could have targeted the avians. But certain types of pollution are very bad for bird eggshells. So that, that could... I don't know, that's just a thought. Because we did see yeah, a lot like of birds theory. die. The whole book, The Silent Spring, that was put out by Rachel Carson was all about that. Um, so if you're interested in bird death, <laughs> go check that out. Oh, how did you know? <laughs> that's like my top thing. Bird death? So yeah. Absolutely. Not. You know, I do like a chicken dinner. but uh, You had to go and make it so... weird. Okay. Oh, it's delicious. Come on now. It's almost as good as Kelpian. That's just a circle of life. Right. Do birds have ganglia? It's a circle of life. Do birds have threat ganglia? I don't think so. You knew there was... Oh, not threat ganglia. You mean the thing that never works? You know, yeah, it was kind of weird when... this is not a discovery. ...walks on the bridge and Zeru's okay with it. Thank you. Yeah. So any... He must have taped him down. I think he taped him down. We got to get Elise on when we talk about Saru. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, Elise has a lot of opinions on Saru. Let me tell you that. Oh yes, boy. you should definitely. I like have him. Her on. I just don't think he would have made the most interesting captain. I'm glad they're keeping him around, but that we get a new face on the. <laughs> oh, on the he still might be. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> we got to save that for the edge. We're going to cut that down right now. We got yeah, no yeah, yeah. discovery. No. no. <laughs> so I was going to say something, but now I totally forgot what I was going to say because we went off on a tangent. Oh, we do that once in a while. <laughs> Yeah. Was it about the circle of life? Because I can re- I can go back into that. No, course. no, it was before that. That's what stopped me from remembering. You, you sang a Disney tune. Of course I went off the rails. Sorry. Um, I forgot. I so, forgot that triggers you. I'm so sorry. Yes. Um, oh, no. So, but we do see, uh, going back to what Elise said, we do see that the Zindi do dabble in uh, targeted... Um, Genetic engineering warfare, you know, because they they go back in time to get information to create a biological weapon that would only target humans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With their blood types. Don't worry about killing off the rest of the life on on planet Earth. They just wanted to get rid of humans. Yeah, Yeah. precisely. And that's something that we're getting closer and closer to being able to do. Um, Selectively target individual, like groups of people or species. Um, People are thinking about doing this with mosquitoes. so yeah, it's okay definitely in the realm of possibility to engineer something that selectively targets certain groups based on their genetics. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Target all those mosquitoes, please. Yeah, mm-hmm. apparently people have done some some research and found that it actually wouldn't like affect the ecosystem in any sort of negative way. Like, there's no reason to have mosquitoes, so why don't we just murder them all? Yes, <laughs> I knew it. I it's knew just a matter that they of you know, like convincing Bill Gates to to pay for it. <laughs> Yeah, that that happens with a lot of these parasites, especially like ticks as well. Like mm-hmm. they don't really serve any purpose in the ecosystem but to prey on others and mooch off of others. So. Yeah, they're just yeah. mooches getting <laughs> carried through life. So, so I have a question here, um, Brandon. It's like negative twelve degrees where you are right now, or something like that. How long do you even have mosquitoes for where you live? Uh, it depends, actually. Last year we had a really dry summer. So we didn't get mosquitoes until like late August. It was really, it was awesome. And then we got a heavy rain. And then honestly, I, I can't even enjoy my backyard. <laughs> like we get so many mosquitoes even here in Regina that I cannot even enjoy my backyard because it's so brutal. And so then years where we've got a lot of moisture throughout the year, like honestly, I, I, I need a blood transfusion to walk to the car. 
<laughs> like, but, so, so you didn't get until August, but when do they die off? Uh, I guess September, October, somewhere in there. So that last year was a long season, right? But I mean, like some years we can get them by, you know, it's like four or five, six months, something like that. You know, it depends on the year. Uh, kind so, of the same as New York. Yeah, somewhere around there. Move to the desert. There aren't any here. <laughs> you know where there's none? Hungry Tucson, Horse, Arizona. Montana. Montana. Horse, Montana. I was at Montana. We have, there's a Bible camp that we go to there, and it's up in the mountains. There was no mosquitoes there. Yeah, if you go up high enough, it's they they don't get up there. Like I went to Peru, and um, I was looking at all these shots I could get for like yellow fever and all these crazy things that can kill you. Um, but I was staying in the Andes the whole time I was there, so it was just so high altitude that the mosquitoes like don't even they don't just don't sweat it. There's no issue, no yeah, issue up there. Lazy. They just don't want to do the work to get up there. Yeah, it's just, you know it's hard to fly. It's cold. It's dry. There aren't too many people to eat. It's just not a good place to be a mosquito. Why do that when there's a rainforest, you know, just right there? Yeah. The air is pretty thin, too. Yeah. Make it harder. So what do you, what is everyone's final thoughts on this? Uh, Michael, you first. Well, I think the Zindi were a very intriguing concept for Star Trek. Um, it's not often that we imagine a world in which there are six intelligent species or more than one intelligent species coexisting at, at once. It's cool to see that although the Zindi have their issues with each other, that they didn't wipe each other out completely. I mean, we had, there were the problems with the avians, but, you know, it does, even though they were the bad guys and they were a little bit malevolent and they're, they, they, they were the thing that was threatening to destroy all of humanity, um, there was a little bit of promise in the fact that there was a world on which six species, intelligent conscious and sentient all coexisted at once and that's a really fun idea to play around with and it's one that i don't think has really been explored in star trek other than the zindi because the other instances that we uh have that for instance uh, dear doctor as we mentioned before that didn't that that doesn't work out and in our own evolutionary history on earth between humans and neanderthals that also didn't work out so it's a cool concept. I really like the idea that they're extremely different from each other. Um, and that probably helps the plausibility of having six independent intelligent species coexisting on a planet. And I'm just really happy to, to see the Zindi. I hope we see them again, maybe coming back in a Discovery or, or a future Star Trek movie or iteration, whatever it is. I would love to see the Zindi honored by having... Zindi crew members or Zindi characters in that. Elise, what are your final thoughts? Um, I think the Zindi are a super interesting case just for somebody who is interested in science and evolution um, to consider how you could have had a history and a world that would have led you to that sort of solution to the problems of ecology. So like what, we don't know anything about this Zindi home world and it's really too bad because the world is ultimately what shapes the life that lives in it. Um, and without knowing anything about their home world, we just have all this room to speculate about what happened. Um, and like you were even thinking earlier about continents and the way that geology could have guided a species to this sort of destiny at the end. Um, but yeah, I, I actually really, really love the Zindi as an idea. And I really wish Star Trek would go back to them because we were just baited with this really complex society and these like six new races to think about 
Um, and there's this huge complex history with them and they're morally gray and they have their own issues, but they're, they're easy to relate to in some ways and hard in others because of the differences between like insectoids and reptilians and the primates. Um, I, I just really wish that we could know more about their history, both like on a planetary level and on sort of a species, um, intelligent history, like History you'd read in a book history, not just Earth history. But as a geologist, of course, I'm most interested in the Earth history of this planet. So yeah, basically ditto what Mike said, but I just really would have liked to know more about how you could get to a, a world that has species like this. So yeah, that's it for me. So if people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you guys? Well, for me, I'm on Twitter at MikeY. That's M-I-Q-U-A-I. I'm usually tweeting about science and star trek and you can also look up our podcast that elise and i co-host it's called strange new worlds it's on itunes and google play um i'm also on twitter i'm just really bad at it uh, <laughs> um you can find me at um at e-m-c-u-t-t-s-y so that's e-m cutsy uh, if you actually tweet at me, I will see it because I don't tweet at all. And so it'll be like the one notification I get in that week. And I would love to, to talk to you about science or Star Trek. Yeah, I'm the worst millennial ever. I'm just terrible at social media. Um, but yeah, you can find me there. You can also uh, shoot me an email at e, um, E-C-U-T-T-S at Caltech, C-A-L-T-E-C-H dot E-D-U. And I'd love to explain or chat about anything science related. So the Zindi are not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network this week. So please take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! They could go on vision quests together. <laughs> yes! So instead of seeing Janeway and Chakotay doing that, it would be Chakotay and Seska. Can two people share a vision quest? Does this even make sense? Uh, I think so. How does it happen without telepathy or without... You need the Akuna. You know, that thing that Chakotay puts his hand on and then it says Akuchimoya? It's the Akuna. So as long as you're both touching the Akuna, you can be in the same vision. Do you know that back in ancient Earth they had an Akuna too? It was in Africa. They called it the Akuna Matata. I knew you were going to go there because I was about to go there. (laughs) Akuna Matata. What a wonderful gadget. The 602 Club. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's definitely one of the big, I would say, two central themes, in my opinion, of the film. And like you said, I think that it's those are archetypes, right? It's the story of it's the story of of life. It's the story of growing up. Um, And those are very well. It's very well, very clearly delineated in the film. The Ready Room. When I wrote the companion book. I knew of basically this moment in time, but I had no idea that this specific memo had been written, much less that it still existed. And yes, so I was just gobsmacked, as Marina would say. Earl Grey. Just within the episode, the arc of, of the nanites going from like this these annoying beings that you want to sterilize and get rid of to ones where you can come to an understanding for their point of view through data at the end and then they can found their civilization is is amazing and I just love that moment when that understanding happens because I love when conflicts like that are resolved through understanding and in a nonviolent way so that's that's my moment 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in the Apple Podcasts app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, or in the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please, please leave us a star rating and written review. It helps other people find the podcast, and we really appreciate it. We might even read it out on air if you do that. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And Brandy, where could people find you when you're not co-conspiring with reptilians to blow up planet Earth? Ooh, you made me an insectoid. Ooh, you can't see it, but I'm doing a fly thing right now with my hands. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am BrandyWine12. That's Brandy with an I, and 12 is a number. Uh, you'll also find me dipping in and out of the Babel Conference, and you can also hear me on a podcast called The Dark Corner Podcast, which I do with my husband Dave on strangeanddeadly.com, also available on iTunes and other podcast apps, and we talk about life and pop culture from a darker perspective, and I do have some occasional colorful metaphors on that one, not for the children, and when new episodes of Discovery are running, I co-host live from the edge with bruce gibson and as soon as discovery returns you will find us on monday evenings at 9 p.m eastern and 6 p.m pacific on our youtube channel of trek fm and patrick where can people find you when you're not flashing off your sexy tail feathers (laughs) when i'm not flashing off my sexy tail feathers (laughs) you can find me popping my head in and out of the babel conference or you can find me on Twitter at MagicDrop5. It's one word. The five is a number. Um, and that's about it. I'm not as busy as the rest of you. So, Brendan, when you're not fighting your urges to be the 50% banana that you are, where can people find you? <laughs> How does the song go? It's bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> All I can think of is the theme song for bananas and pajamas. <laughs> I'm actually seeing the... Peanut butter jelly with Brian dancing like a big peanut banana. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly in a baseball bat. Peanut butter jelly in a baseball hat. You can, you can find me on Twitter at my new handle of Brandon Banana Banana Banana. Um, also known as Brandon Patella. You can find me over on The Edge, which is our Star Trek Discovery podcast with my good friend Amy Nelson. You can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom, where we talk about Alfred Hitchcock films one at a time. And I think that's it. Everyone's while I poke my head up at the Babel Conference. If you'd like to help us keep all these shows coming to you each week, you can become a, a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P A T 
R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It's requ- it requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. At this time, we'd like to thank all of our wonderful Zindi patrons who are supporting our show as well as the network as a whole. We've got the wonderful avian Norman C. Lau. We've got the aquatic Floyd Dorsey. We've got the primate Mike Morrison. We've got the arboreal Tim Cooper. We've got the insectoid Justin Ozer. We've got the reptilian Mark Flessa. And we've got the banana Joel Saltzman. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Bananas, the seventh Zindi species. <laughs> I have seven patrons and only six Zindi, so I did what I could here. So. Yeah, but we saw two arboreals most of the time. Yeah, but Joe's, Joe's a banana. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Excellent. Thanks so much for your support of the show as well as the network as a whole. Until next time, keep calm and boom on. <laughs>